Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor, a digital resource for the multidisciplinary cancer team. My name is Dr. Rahul Banerjee. I'm one of the editorial board members, and in March, in honor of Multiple Myeloma Awareness Month, I'll be speaking with various faculty across the country who are experts in important topics in myeloma that we sometimes don't talk about as much. Today, it's my honor to speak with Dr. Raj Shekhar Chakraborty, an assistant professor at the Columbia University Irvine Medical Center. Uh, he is an expert in multiple myeloma and other plasma cell dyscrasias, including AL amyloidosis. And he's also published extensively about the topic that we'll be discussing today, and that is clots, venous thromboembolic events and arterial thromboembolic events. Dr. Chakraborty Raj, pleasure to, to meet with you. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Thank you, Rahul. Not an expert by any means, but thanks for the invitation. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk about uh, thromboembolism in myeloma today. Absolutely. So I guess, um, you know, I, I think the, the prelude to this, right, is that um, this is important for two reasons. One, because blood clots can be life-threatening, either venous or arterial. And secondly, because, you know, a lot of our patients reflexively are put on prophylaxis, so aspirin or sometimes even a direct a, a novel anticoagulant that we'll speak about later in this interview. And that's an extra pill for them. And polypharmacy is a big problem for our patients with myeloma. Many of them are taking dozens of pills a week and not excluding even the dexamethasone they take. And so making sure that we are not over-prescribing or under-prescribing prophylaxis, I think is important on both fronts. So maybe I'll start with venous thromboembolic events. In my mind, I often say lenalidomide, aspirin, no lenalidomide, no aspirin. Is it more complicated than that? How do you gauge who's at risk of VTE in myeloma and who isn't? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. So definitely, you know, lenalidomide or immunomodulatory drugs, emits are a risk factor for venous thromboembolism. But going back a little bit, you know, myeloma by itself is, is a risk factor for venous thromboembolism. You know, there was a large study done in Sweden that, that pretty much predated the EMID era in which they found that patients with multiple myeloma, they had about a seven and a half fold risk of developing VTE in the first year compared to matched controls. So, you know, we know that myeloma by itself can be a risk factor for VTE. And then, of course, you know, fast forward in 2000s and, you know, early 2010s, you know, when we knew that emits are a risk factor for venous thromboembolism, you know, it's a class effect. So it's seen in all three of the emits we have. And, you know, that's why IMWG you know, formulated this consensus guideline for thromboprophylaxis with immunomodulatory drugs in myeloma. Uh, I think it was in around 2008. Uh, which was later adopted by NCCN as well. Um, however, you know, there was a large study done. Uh, there, were, there were two clinical trials done in the UK. One was pre-IMWG era and uh, thromboprophylaxis era, and one was post-thromboprophylaxis era. So one was the myeloma 9 trial, and second was the myeloma 11 trial. So although we don't have a randomized control trial, but this is kind of a natural experiment as to what is the rate of VTE before and after these thromboprophylaxis guidelines were adopted, you know, in clinical practice in the setting of clinical trial. And they saw that although the rate of VTE decreased somewhat, the decrease wasn't that significant. So, you know, if you look at the numbers in the pre-IMWG thromboprophylaxis of the myeloma 9 trial, the rate of VTE with um, regimens like, you know, CTD or cytoxin thalidomide dexamethasone, which was commonly used in, in the UK for induction, was roughly in the ballpark of around 16%. And that post IMWG thromboprophylaxis era, you know, it was roughly in the ballpark of 10 to 13 percent, depending on you know, what population you looked at. So it decreased somewhat, but you know, the still 10 to 13 percent is a significant number. And that's why, you know, begs the question that can we develop better risk stratification tools to predict, you know, who are the ones who are at a high risk of developing 
uh, thromboprophylax, uh, thromboembolic events like VTE, venous thromboembolic events and multiple myeloma. And now we have uh, two you know, risk stratification tools which are rigorously developed and externally validated and already published. And one of them, uh, the other one, you know, we presented at ASH 2020 and the, the manuscript with the external validation is currently, you know, under review. So um, I'll go over them, you know, briefly to discuss, you know, what are the risk factors. Let's talk about first the, the two scores, you know, which are already published. So one is the SAVED and the second is the MPVTE score. And, uh, you know, these two, uh, I think, were all, both of them were published the past two years and uh, they are, I think, now in the NCCM guidelines as well. Um, so basically, when I look at a patient, a newly diagnosed patient with multiple myeloma, and to find to, to figure out basically who is at a higher risk of developing VTE, uh, you know, the, one of the important things that I look at is what are the risk factors that are common to all of these three scores, the safety, impede VTE, and PRISM. So the ones which are common is number one is prior VTE. So any patient with prior history of VTE, the hazard ratio is usually very high. It's close to five or even more than that, you know, in most of the scores. And second is uh, prior surgery within 90 days, you know, which there's an overlap with patients who have uh, orthopedic, you know, like uh, surgeries due to fractures, like pelvic femur or hip fractures. And, so and that is- diagnosed, agreed, totally agreed. Yeah, so these, and then, you know, obviously emit, you know, yes versus no, which is kind of a moot point now because most of our initial regimens contain emit. Uh, so anybody with emit and having one of these additional risk factors, you know, definitely is at a high risk, you know, no matter what risk score you use. And then the other thing is the treatment related risk factor, which has been consistently shown, you know, is a high dose dexamethasone that is more than 160 milligrams of dexamethasone per cycle. That's how, you know, uh, these uh, high dose was defined in, in the derivation cohorts of these sports. And then also the use of multi-agent chemotherapy or doxorubicin. Now, again, you know, both high-dose dexamethasone and chemo use is fairly rare, you know, in, nowadays in neurodiagnosed myeloma treatment, as you know. But if there is a patient on whom I'm using high-dose dexamethasone for some reason, like uh, gas nephropathy or acute kidney injury, in combination with emits, you know, that I would definitely consider at a very high risk of venous thromboembolism. And another interesting negative risk factor is Asian passive alander race. So both in SAFED and MPDB score, because they used a large population databases, they had a large number of Asian patients, you know, which uh, we did not have in, our, in the derivation cohort of the PRISM score, you know, because our population was about 80% white and 90% black, so African-American, and 1% of all other races. So uh, both the SAFED and MPDBT score found that patients who are Asian or Pacific Islander race, they had a significantly lower risk of VT, so it's a negative risk factor compared to non-Asian Pacific Islander race. So, um, so these are, I would say, the risk factors that I look at is if somebody is on emit, and on top of that has any of these additional risk factors, prior surgery or prior VTE, or on high-dose dexamethasone versus any chemotherapy, those are usually considered at a very high risk of VTE. Um, and those who are, you know, don't have any of these shared risk factors, I consider them at a lower risk. Um, in PRISM score, we also found that abnormal metaphysitogenetics was a high risk, you know, there was a risk factor for VTE in the derivation cohort. We will see if that holds up with the external validation cohort. Um, you know, if, if, if it does, then that would be an additional disease-specific risk factor for VTE. But we did not find high-risk fish cytogenetics or high IS stage, for example, to be a risk factor for VTE in the in the derivation cohort of the PRISM score that we presented. Absolutely. I, I will say another negative in that you didn't mention it would be choice of PI. So I think a lot of us, when we see a quadruplet versus a triplet, or more particularly carfilzomib versus uh, the Velcade versus bortezomib, do consider a higher risk or consider stronger prophylaxis. We'll speak about in a second. I know that some institutions in New York, for example, used in the Manhattan trial, Sloan Kettering yeah. used uh, a rivaroxaban for everybody. 
Can you speak on the evidence base for PI, uh, specific PIs and risk of VTE? Sure, yeah. So definitely that's that's a great point that uh, among PIs, and not all PIs are the same, you know, as far as the risk of VTE is concerned, definitely we have seen that the risk of VTE is higher with carfilzomib compared to uh, bertezomib or ixazomib. In many of the trials also, when carfilzomib is combined with elitz, the risk of VTE was high. Um, and uh, there is most of the data on this has come from Sloan Kettering. As you know, they have been using carfilzomib-based induction for quite some time. And uh, Dr. Neha Corday and colleagues have recently presented a paper in British Journal of Pneumatology where they looked at their VTE rates when KRD-based regimens were used with aspirin thromboprophylaxis versus when KRD-based regimens were used with rivaroxaban thromboprophylaxis. And although it's not, again, it's not a randomized trial, but I think it's a very, very good natural experiment because they switched from aspirin to rivaroxaban because they noticed a high risk of VTE with aspirin alone. And the difference was actually, you know, it was dramatic. Like it was 16% risk of VTE when KRD was used with aspirin, and it dropped to around in the ballpark of 4% when KRD was used with rivaroxaban. So although there is not a randomized trial, you know, this is, I think, very compelling data that when we are using carfilzomib in combination with Revlimate or any MAT, you know, for that matter, um, you know, we should probably be using something more than aspirin to prevent VT. And uh, another point I would make is none of these risks posed like a saved in PTVT or even PRISM, you know, had a significant number of carfilzomib treated patients in the derivation cohort. So carfilzomib is an additional risk factor which is currently not captured by any of these scores. And we have to keep that in mind, you know, when we are evaluating patients, uh, neurodiagnosed patients in particular. Absolutely. I'll switch gears slightly. We've been speaking really about induction therapy for, you know, triplet, quadruplets for the last uh, five, 10 minutes here. On the other side, so now that they've gotten transplant or finished their induction therapy and are on uh, lenalidide maintenance, can you talk through two things? Maybe one, your approach to thromboprophylaxis and the risk on just len maintenance, and two, only because this came up on a, spirit, a spirited debate on Twitter earlier this month, when you stop the lenalidomide, how quickly do you stop the prophylaxis thereafter? Yeah, so maintenance, you know, it's always interesting because we, we know that based on the natural history studies of VTE myeloma, that most of the VTE events happen in the first six months. And this has been shown in the myeloma 11 trial where they have looked specifically at VTE and majority of the events were in the first six months. Uh, we, you know, at the Cleveland Clinic cohort, we had during my fellowship, I had done this project in which we had looked at uh, VTE um, incidents at approximately 1,000 patients who were diagnosed and treated in Cleveland Clinic between 2008 and 2018. And we had found that uh, we had looked only in the first one year, and we had found that most of the VT events had happened in the first six months. Now, having said that, you know, we used lenalidomide, as you know, in maintenance. And the question is, is there a higher risk of VT with lenalidomide? And I think uh, in the maintenance setting in particular. Mm -hmm. And I think the cleanest data for this comes, again, from the Myeloma 11 trial, because they had uh, randomized patients to lenalidomide versus, you know, observation. And uh, they had looked at the risk of VTE. And mm -hmm. in their protocol regarding thromboprophylaxis, you know, because you have to interpret that in the context of what thromboprophylaxis were, were they using. At that time. And it, at that time, yeah. And in their protocol for the myeloma 11 trial, they had specified a thromboprophylaxis use, you know, as per the IMWG guidelines in the first three months. But beyond three months, to my understanding, it was as per investigators' you know, discretion uh, ah. because, the, because of the reason that, you know, again, most of the VT events happened in the first three months. So the manuscript by Dr. Bradbury et al. in Blood Journal, it specified that in the first three months, it was, you know, strongly recommended or, you know, it was protocol. Uh, and then after that, so I'm not sure whether they were using, you know, aspirin with the rev limit or not. Maybe some investigators were using it, some were not. And they found the risk of VT with LEN maintenance to be around 4%. 
and whereas it was 0.6% with placebo. So, um, you know, so the risk was fairly low compared to induction, you know, because the induction in the range of 10 to 12%, but it's, it was still, you know, 4% so was, you know, not, not zero, but I would say it's a fairly low risk of ET during the maintenance. So what during maintenance, I never use anything more than aspirin, you know, for trauma prophylaxis, because again, you have to weigh the risk of bleeding, you know, with, with, when you're using things like, you know, rivaroxaban or apixaban. Okay. So I usually use aspirin and I, I typically stop as soon as I stop the lanolidomide. Uh, yeah, so that, that's what I typically do. You know, most of the, it's going to, going to be hard to have, you know, any more randomized data because most of the thromboprophylaxis trials, they will typically look at induction. I, I don't think, you know, anybody will look at the maintenance. I but I think these numbers from the myeloma 11 trial help a lot in like putting the risk benefit in perspective. I totally agree. And then just to clarify, this is very informative. Thank you, Raj. Um, the 4% figure risk with a relevant my maintenance is that per year, that's over the duration of their maintenance period as a recall in myeloma 11. That's to my knowledge, it, it was the total um, total incidence, you know, over the entire trial period. Over, over how long recall yeah. for the trial? Yeah, and, and they, yeah, they had used it until progression. So, mm -hmm. you know, it was yeah probably longer than two years. Mm -hmm. This is very informative. Thank you. Um, the last thing I'll do then is quickly pivot to one of your other papers about a topic that we really don't talk about really that much in hematology at all uh, is the arterial thromboembolic events. I feel like the cardiologists and the neurologists normally take those under their wing. You've also published about the risk of arterial events in these patients. Can you speak more about that? Sure, yeah. So, you know, in the same study that we did in Cleveland Clinic, looking at uh, 1,000 patients, you know, and the risk of thromboembolism, we looked at actually both venous and arterial at the same time. And in that, we found that the risk of arterial thromboembolism, you know, in the first one year was roughly about 2.7%. So it was much lower than what has been published previously in the era of cytotoxic chemotherapy. For example, uh, there was one published um, in which patients were treated with imids and uh, doxorubicin-based chemotherapy, and it was in the range of 5 to 6% at that time. It was much lower. And in the myeloma 11 trial also, they had looked at arterial thromboembolism rates, and it was roughly around 1.5 to 1.7%, which is understandable given that, you know, in clinical trials, they're probably going to have somewhat healthier patients than the real world. So that's why the incidence was slightly low uh, compared to real world, you know, but nevertheless, we saw a 12 month, we only looked to one year from diagnosis. So, you know, that's a caveat in Cleveland Clinic cohort. So we did not look beyond one year. So it was roughly in the ballpark of 2.7%. And most of the events were uh, either a stroke, TIA, or acute myocardial infarction, mm -hmm. um, you know, those 2.5%. Um, another thing I would like to point is, you know, we always focus more on the first one year, but uh, the risk of, you know, this is an elderly population overall, the median age of myeloma is 69 years. So there is a risk of arterial thromboembolism even beyond the one year. And there was a, another recent paper from the UK, very large paper. Uh, you know, it was published in Lancet by the first author was Strongman, you know, Strongman et al., in which they looked at... Uh, risk of, you know, cardiovascular events, which included not only arterial thromboembolism, but also things like arrhythmia or CHF um, in patients who are one-year survivors of several cancers. And it included around 1,900 patients with multiple myeloma who were one-year survivors. And they found out that the risk of CAD and stroke, you know, and they matched extensively with not only age and sex match, but they also matched for all pertinent risk factors. So they did, the analysis was very robust. And they found that the patients who are one-year survivors of myeloma, their hazard ratio for developing CAD was roughly 1.8, and for stroke was roughly 1.7 compared to matched controls. So I think that's important to remember that even in one-year survivors, when patients are on maintenance and roughly, you know, the dust has settled and transplant after induction and transplant, 
it's important to do, you know, go back to the basics and maybe do a basic like cardiovascular risk assessment in these patients and, you know, things like modifiable risk factors to smoking, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, things like that. Maybe have them see, you know, cardio-oncologists, you know, for risk factor modification. It's important because the risk of AD, it kind of persists, you know, over time and more than, you know, what uh, the age and sex match controls would have otherwise, you know, without myeloma. So I think that's an important thing to remember. That's very, very helpful. And in your study that you had done at the Cleveland Clinic, I, I suspect the numbers were probably too low for this, but could you tell that there were certain risk factors, be it smoking or be it use of carfilzomib or prior cardiac history that did put people at higher risk of arterial events or difficult to say with that uh, analysis? It's, diff- it's difficult to say because you know, although we had 1,000 patients, it seems like a lot, like a lot but the event, the, it was only 2.7%. So we had only very few events on arterial thromboembolism. So we could only do a univariable analysis. We could not do a multivariable analysis. Okay. Having said that, we found that the strongest risk factor was prior ATE or prior RTE, like those are prior CAD, which is, you know, makes sense. And then all the usual suspects, just smoking, CKD, diabetes, hyperlipidemia. The only one which was a little bit unexpected was patients who had an infection within 90 days prior to diagnosis. They had a higher risk of having ATE. Maybe there's a strong correlation with, you know, those of diabetes. Maybe they are at a higher risk of infection or those who, you know, have other comorbidities, they have a higher risk of infection. Or something inflammatory we don't quite understand. But yeah. yeah, or something inflammatory, yeah. That's, so, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, um, hopefully, you know, with larger cohorts, maybe so if someone can do a multivariable analysis with larger number of events, that would be really helpful to, you know, find out just like we did and what are the risk factors for it. Agreed. And it's a good plug that we should talk about smoking with our patients. I feel like practically now as an oncologist, as a, not as a non-thoracic oncologist, I, I think our <laughs> transplant coordinators kind of go, tsk, tsk, stop smoking before your transplant. We try to get them to stop, but yeah. we, do, we do it for the transplant just logistically, not so much for uh, the long-term risk, as you mentioned, the 1.8 risk, 1.8 fold hazard ratio of arterial events. And that's important to remember in our patients. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, I think those are all the questions I had. This is very informative. I certainly learned a lot. Any closing remarks or anything else you'd want to add? Yeah, maybe just one thing, you know, regarding the VTE, I would say that um, one of the things that we have noticed now, you know, in uh, with, with VTE in myeloma is the in most, you know, solid tumors, for example, there is a strong correlation that patients who have a VTE, they have worse survival compared to patients who do not have a VTE. Um, but in myeloma, at least from the myeloma 11 trial, which was a very large data set, and also our Cleveland Clinic cohort, you know, had a similar finding that VTE in the first 12 months you know, did not actually have an adverse impact on overall survival. Uh, it's possible that this VT, since it may be most be reflecting image side effect and not like, you know, adverse biology. Uh, okay. I'm not sure, you know, what the reason is, uh, but both the myeloma 11 trial as well as the Cleveland Clinic cohort, you know, showed that patients who have VT in the first 12 months, you know, they actually, it was not associated with the worst overall survival. But ATE was, arterial thromboembolism was, uh, but VTE wasn't. So I think that's an important thing to remember uh, because it's kind of, it's counterintuitive to what you would think with other solid tumors or even some older data in myeloma. That's very, very true, especially compared to solid malignancies. Thank you. Thank you again for your time, Dr. Chakrabarti. This was very, very uh, uh, eye-opening for, for all of us. And uh, to the audience, thank you all for listening. Uh, I'm Dr. Banerjee, and this was Oncology Data Advisor. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Oncology Data Advisor. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatments, all found at oncdata.com.